I don't know what's real. I don't know what's not real. Limited Capacity is a collection of six darkly amusing stories about the mysterious ways we interact with the internet and with each other. There's something going on with him. It's like an act. I don't trust him. What? You're staring at me like I should say something, but I don't really know what to do here. That's the whole name of the game. Don't talk about how the town isn't real. Do you understand? Limited Capacity. Available now on CBC Listen or wherever you get your podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. Welcome to Sick Boy, a podcast where we talk about what it's like to be sick. This week's guests are Emily, who's recently recovered from COVID-19, and Adam Kucharski, an epidemiologist and the author of The Rules of Contagion, Why Things Spread and Why They Stop. Let's talk about it. All right. Hi, guys. Hey. Oh, hi. Uh, there we go. That it's the it's the it's the COVID alarm. The COVID, COVID alarm. alarm. COVID-19 going off. Pop it off. Favorite, it's my favorite uh, phone sound. It's a bit grating on the ears, to be honest with you, over uh, over Zoom. But it is. I, actually, I, I don't know. I tried to hold it far enough back from the microphone so it wasn't too overbearing, but mm. uh, I, I think it still was, wasn't it? Well, uh, I'm glad you sounded the alarm, Brian, because uh, we are about to have a conversation with one of the very first confirmed cases of COVID. Uh, well, that doesn't make sense. We're talking to someone who was one of the first confirmed people to have a case of COVID. That makes more sense. I guess so. You, I, you had right. me, you there was had a me at the first time too, but it's just a lot. There's a lot of words there. Um, <laughs> uh, Emily is, uh, is a young woman here in Halifax who, who had COVID. She is now technically, um, one of the few people that have recovered from it. And, um, she, she was very, um, uh, gracious enough to sit down and share with us her experience of what that, what that was like. Um, which I'm, I'm happy for because I, I felt like I needed to hear it from someone. I needed to hear how it felt for somebody else for me to kind of like cool my, my very subtle, but like very legitimate fears surrounding this, this virus that is just floating out around I think the, the I world. I think it's your, your jets. You were looking to cool my jets. Cool my jets. Hey dude. Hey Jared, can I tell you something that might make you feel a little bit better? Yeah. Um, there was a, a six-year-old kid with cystic fibrosis who had COVID-19 and he fully recovered. I saw that. Yeah. Does I that saw- make you feel a little bit better? Yeah, it does. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. And I, I was are actually- his, are his lungs just not like fucked enough yet? <laughs> I mean, yeah. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, you but, know what? Now I don't feel so good. Than a, <laughs> <laughs> but you're stronger than a little six-year-old kid. Oh, no. uh, all right, let's not let's not fuck around anymore here. Let's throw it to this week's episode. Hey, um, but um, but before we <laughs> before we do, we should mention too that we're going to be talking to our our friend Adam Kucharski a little bit later on too. Yes, we are. We are, and uh, we'll we'll be back after this conversation with Emily to uh, to throw into that conversation and tell you a little bit about Adam. Hope you enjoy it, and uh, we'll see you on the other side. Okay, here we go. Can I start this off on a, on a positive note? Why don't, you, why don't you kick it off on a positive note, Tay? We just ordered pad thai, 
Um, yeah. and it arrived and Kyla, uh, being vegan asked for no egg and hers came with egg. So now we get a double pad thai and they're going to have to bring another pad thai without egg. So I got two orders of pad thai for me to eat. Amazing. Just thrilling. Uh, so glad that you decided to bring that up on the podcast, Taylor. Um, I just thought there's I so much that, negative news in the world these days. Yeah. Just looking for the silver lining. So you just, you're like, I, I don't know if you romanticize your time in quarantine or not, but like to me, it sounds like you're just having a ball. Like the last couple of weeks has just been amazing for you. Well, you know, it's had it's, had its ups and downs, but uh, I'm no stranger to the coach. So, Well, you know who probably didn't have much of a ball uh, in their quarantine is our, our guest today, uh, Emily. Hello. Hello. Um, you are, A, the first person that I've talked to, um, and one of um, the few people in our province, at least, uh, who have experienced the one thing that the entire fucking world is terrified of right now. Emily, you, uh, you, are, you have been uh, a COVID-19 patient. That's fucking crazy. That is mm-hmm. fucking is, crazy. Yeah. I have. It is, cr- it is very crazy. It's it doesn't it feels like a movie honestly so i guess technically um i will go through it all but you're you, how are you right now we're recording this um on sunday april 5th and you are technically mm-hmm. you're technically in the clear now you're you're yes, what's re- referred to as recovered yes recovered resolved Re- i'm one of one of those how many right, people okay. in in nova scotia right now are recovered i think there's in the 50s now oh wow okay yeah so when I when I was recovered, I was one of the first ten to recover. So it's good to see more people coming along. Mm. That's sweet. I'm just looking at that. Uh, yeah, it says yeah, it's fifty on the nose on the on that <clears throat> Encove uh, 2019 right. site. It says uh, yeah. fifty recovered with 236 confirmed. Yeah. I'm really I'm really like aching to hear the whole story of your experience because um like you said it's kind of like it it feels kind of like a movie to you. I think to a lot of us it's kind of like almost a surreal movie like experience just existing on this planet right now. So mm. yeah. um I'm I'm curious uh to like kind of hear your story. Uh so from the beginning um when did you start to feel sick? Were you traveling abroad? Were you located at home? Like, tell us about that. Yeah. So I was abroad. And this was before everything was kind of put into place with social distancing. And like at this point, people were still doing the foot, the foot shake and the elbow taps. So that, that's what era we're kind of talking about in this new life we're in. Mm-hmm. Um, and... I was a little bit worried when I was away. Like, I was definitely more more conscious than I was. I was wiping things. I was sanitizing. I was hand-washing. I was keeping my distance. And it was, kind of, it was kind of one of those things where you just don't know how serious to take it or how scared to be when, when you're away. And when I came home, I felt fine. And again, there was nothing put into place about people isolating who have been away at this point. And I wasn't checked or anything coming home. So it didn't seem like much of a worry. And then I got, I started feeling sick about a week, week, nine, eight days after I got home. <clears throat> and what, what were those um, symptoms like when you started yeah, to feel like when sick? You, when you say feeling sick, like, mm-hmm. like, were you 
Like I right before we started recording, I was laying on the couch, just kind of like I just needed to get away from the screen for a bit, and I was just laying there, and I I cough all the fucking time, but I coughed, and it was like a cough that it was like a dry cough that that like I'm not really familiar with, and I had this like this little brief moment of like oh fuck I got it I got like I was like kind of went into <laughs> a panic, it. and I was like wait whoa whoa just like whoa whoa dude you're fine yeah but it was like I, you yeah. know. It, were, were you, when you started to feel sick, was it, was it like, ah, oh, fuck, I'm coming down with a cold? Or were you, were you already in that mindset of COVID's going around? What if this is COVID? Uh-oh. Um, it's, it's crazy because you can convince yourself of anything, I feel like now, and convince yourself that you don't have anything also, which is the worrisome thing. But for me, it started off with just feeling really sensitive to light. Like, I kind of just wanted to be in a dark room, shut the blinds. And it just hurt to kind of be in a room even this bright. Um, and then I, I had a runny nose, and it just that was kind of the first day. Just headache, runny nose, and, and uh, sensitive to light, kind of like a sinus infection. And then the second day, I was sneezing nonstop, and then that's when I was like, okay, I'm sick. This isn't just allergies. This is like a head cold. Um, and then it was the third day that I woke up, and, and I was like, this this is not like what I've had before. This is crazy. I feel like I can't even, I don't even feel like I'm in my body right now. And then that's the day that I went and got tested. Yeah. So <clears throat> you, um, you made a post on your, your Instagram that, that got quite a bit of traction. Um, and in that post, you, you basically shared your, your, like a, like a daily diary of symptoms. Um, mm -hmm. and I just want to read what you have written here for day three. Cause I find it, uh, pretty, pretty interesting. Woke up with extreme body aches, chills, congestion, very fatigued, sneezing and tickle in my throat. I wouldn't even classify the tickle as a cough because it just felt like I was constantly clearing my throat. I lost all sense of smell and taste, nauseous and no appetite. Um, that like, it sounds like you, Taylor. You sound like you're you have fucking COVID every time you're trying to you're, you're trying to clear your throat. Like every <laughs> I clear my throat two seconds so you speak. Often. Um, what's like? What was that all about? Was it just that um, you know, like like because from from everything that I've that we've been told, this is a, a respiratory illness, right? So it's like it's affecting mm. it's affecting the lungs, um, but that like dry <laughs> cough or like clearing the throat yeah. seems seems different from that you know like it was mm -hmm. was there what was up with that like you so that was just I think for me that's just how the cough kind of started because the reason why I was not thinking it was even COVID because it was it was like not all in my head but it, it was all in my head like it was a lot of congestion and stuff like that so it wasn't so much the shortness of breath and um, I never had a fever and I never had a cough. And those are the three things that they're kind of like, check, check, check. Mm -hmm. um, then you might have COVID. I didn't have those things until day three, um, which is when I didn't, like I said, that's why I didn't think I had it because I didn't think I had a cough, but then I was constantly going, <clears throat> <clears throat> like I had like sawdust or something in my throat. And then at that point I was like, I don't normally do this. This might be a cough. And then the next day it was a cough. And then it just kept getting worse and worse. And before you started to like feel any symptoms at all, when you returned home, you said it was still kind of like in that the early days of COVID-19 where there weren't really these like social isolation protocols and stuff like that. Were you like hanging out with people during that time? And were you like when you started to feel sick, were you concerned at all that like you had been spending time with like friends and family um, or people like that or? 
No, the second, well, of course, I, I told anyone that I saw in that period, I was like, just so you know, I just got home from, from wherever, and they were like, okay, cool, because no one really cared in the first week of March, as terrible as that sound, no one thought it was real, and I, of course, never thought I would have picked it up, and I, so when I, so, so then what comes down to is, is when you, you test positive, they, public health is like, okay, where have you been? who have you seen and, and what, and, and like, they kind of do that, that tracing for you. It's almost like, uh, like, like when you, if you test positive with like some other type of infectious disease or like sexually transmitted infection, it's like, who were your previous mm-hmm. sexual partners? Like, yeah. Was, it, was that them. hard to like, like if I got, if I got <clears throat> syphilis today and they were like, who were your past sexual partners? I'd be like, Hmm. Okay. Well, like they'd be pretty easy to like rack mm-hmm. that off the top of the head. Um, yeah. When they're like, okay, you have COVID, like, who have you wh- walked? By? Where are all the places you've been? <laughs> who are all the people yeah. you've seen? Like, was that was that kind of tough to wrap your head around? And be like, oh, because fuck, man, I forget. I don't. I don't remember what I did <laughs> yesterday. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, I, I find it hard. You to were remember. at your house yesterday, Jared. <laughs> I, right, all, right, 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 right. All day. Actually, for the last two weeks, <laughs> pretty much just at your house. <laughs> but was it was it kind yeah, of tough to thing. wrap your so head like, around everything? Yeah, because of course, like I was, I was keeping it lo- like low, more low key than usual, just to be on the safe side. But like I was still out and about, and then that, of course, the moment they tell you positive, your mind just r- rewinds everywhere you've been and, and and places like that. And then the lucky thing is, is like I knew who I was around and who might be at risk, so immediately I called them, I, I told them, and then that's kind of how that trickled through the line. Um, but it's. I think now the big thing is like people from most part, I know people are social, social distancing. So if someone is a test positive now, I don't think they would have as big of a tracing history. Hopefully it would be maybe their, their workplace or something like that. But it, it becomes like, like for me, like I said, I was, I was at the start of all this. So it was kind of so new for everyone. Like even public health was like, oh my gosh, like you, you, like they just didn't really, they knew what to do, but it was just really overwhelming for everyone. Yeah, I don't. I don't what? know if they were doing this when when we when they, I'm sure that they probably weren't because everything changed so fast. I mean, like the difference between you getting home in the first week of March. I was also abroad and I got home on the 23rd or 24th. Like the difference in those, you know, t- 10, 12, those 12 days were like, you know, the world mm-hmm. was a totally different place. When Kyle and I were on our last flight, it was either our flight uh, to Toronto or our flight to Halifax. Um, we got an email from WestJet and it said, uh, and I think anybody who had been on a WestJet flight recently got the email and it said, if you were on any of these flights and you were sitting between this row and this row, whoa, you should, uh, mm-hmm. you should go, you should like go request to be tested. Yeah. Um, whoa, mm-hmm. crazy. Um, because, uh, because they were like, there are confirmed cases in this row. And then they, I guess they, you know, in whatever way they say, you know, everybody in front of you this far and behind you. What this a fucking far. crazy job! Mm-hmm. Yeah, to be like the to be the investigator, uh, like you know, like to trace that stuff back. I know. Um, um, yeah. I was gonna. I was gonna ask Emily. I know that like um, we talk about like how extra cautious Jer is because he's immunocompromised, and how like uh, like you're you're a fairly young person. You're 26. You said. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm I'm wondering like, what's your medical history like? Like, are you do you have any pre-existing health conditions that no, would like cause you I to have, have concern? 
Okay. No, I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm all clear, and so that's why I was kind of just like, I've never felt like I'm lucky. I've never felt sick. I've never had to go to a hospital. I've never had to do these kinds of things, and so all of it was new, and and it was really isolating. Mm. Like you, I was literally like, you guys. I'm the only person that you guys know of. I think so far, I was the only person I knew of. So I was like. Who can I talk to? Who am I going to call? Who can relate to anything that I'm mm. feeling right now? And so that's kind of why I was like, hey, Halifax, I got coronavirus. You know someone who has it now. Don't be scared to speak out. Don't be scared to talk to each other because I don't want to say it, but I, when I told my friends, I was like, I think I'm not going to be the only one who has this for a short period of time. Mm-hmm. Did you feel yeah. like... Even in just one week, even in just one week, I've already had a handful of people tell me, yeah, I know someone else who has it or I yeah. have it myself. Well, that, I mean, that's just so. bound to happen with the numbers, you know, constantly rising every day. Exactly. Do you um, have a, a fear? Uh, do you have a, a get it or get a sense that, I mean, again, we don't know when, we don't know when things are going to change and start to swing in the opposite direction. Do you, do you, do you have any, uh, do you have any feeling that when things do start to clear up, just having had it will like carry a stigma for you that like that, that even though it's, it's come, it's gone, you've recovered. There's almost like this, there, there might be like this, oh, but she had it, you know? Um, oh yeah. Like, 100%, I wonder, can I think- she still give it to me? You know, just people that, that, that assign irrational fears to, to issues like this. Oh, yeah, 100%. That was one of the things I took in consideration. I was like, okay, I I know people are going to treat me different or look at me different now, even though I'm clear, I'm not contagious. Public health has told me I'm not contagious. And it's just people, I I think they they think the craziest things. Everyone's terrified of this. Everyone's coming to these, like, conspiracy theories. So if they see me a mile away, like, I'm not surprised. If people will run, they shouldn't. Like... But I mean, it's better to know that I don't have it anymore than a stranger who might have it. I, I, I want to come uh, back to yeah. I want to come back to when you were when things started to kind of like get worse. So, you, you know, you were on day four and and it seems through reading your, your diary there um, that that was the day that like um, things were getting much worse. What, what was the day you called 811 um, to like to inquire about getting tested? Was it day three? Day three. Day day four, what you wrote down here was all of the above uh, plus worsened dry cough. Uh, Taking, talking took effort and I would have Mm -hmm. to pause to catch my breath. My -hmm. lips were blue at one point, which I didn't think much of at first until the next night my skin was blotchy and white. My nurse told me uh, these were signs I wasn't getting enough oxygen, which was freaky. I went to the hospital and had a chest x-ray to make sure pneumonia wasn't in my future, which luckily it wasn't. Whoa. <clears throat> um, so at this point on day four, you, you have been tested. Yeah. And, but, but the... Day four, I think I was still waiting for my results uh, on day four. Sure, And right. so I think the blue lips came that night and, and, I, and like everything was felt so weird. Like I felt tired i felt nauseous felt i felt fucked. dizzy yeah. i felt like literally like not even in my own body and so yeah. i see blue lips and i'm like am i hallucinating right now or are my lips blue like am i like, am i am i tripping Whoa. out right now like because you can just make yourself think crazy things and then I took a picture and it was like yeah no lips are definitely blue and so i went to bed because i mostly slept and then next day my whole arm was like white and blotchy and veiny and it looked so strange and then just casually i mentioned to my nurse like hey th- these two things happened and like it's a little bit hard to 
breathe and she said, okay, yeah, you, this, these are like two, three signs that basically you need to get checked out because your symptoms are worsening. So when you say your nurse, do you mean that there was somebody that was like assigned to you for you to communicate with once you, once you were positive? So yeah, for the first like four or five days, I actually had the same nurse, which was really amazing. Um, I could text her actually if I needed, if I had a question. Um, but then of course, once more people started getting cases, um, I had different nurse call me. It was like probably three nurses that called me. Um, and so they were really helpful. It was great to have someone on hand and not have to call and wait, wait for 811. And like, they would call go you, back. uh, like every day or, or like they would check up on yeah, you or every day they would call. Yeah. They would call every day wow. and ask what my symptoms were, if they were getting worse and they would, uh, record my temperature, but I, I never got a temperature. So that didn't really matter. <laughs> I kind of want to go back to the day that you called 811 because I know that people were saying they were having difficulty getting through to the line and, mm-hmm. and, um, I'm wondering what your experience was like and and how did they actually physically test you? Did you have to go to the hospital? Mm -hmm. Yeah, so I called, I I tried to call 811. It took me approximately 50 times. Whoa. But, I mean, we're already already in quarantine. We have nothing else to do. So I just called all morning on repeat until I got through. Once I got through, I said, I've been away. I have a cough. And they said, okay. And then I waited another few hours and someone called me, uh, a nurse called me and sessed me twice on the phone. And then they took me, they told me to go into the hospital. Uh, I got tested at the hospital and they did it by uh, a swab. Really when, you long go, up the nose. when you go into the hospital, are they like prepped for like this potential COVID-19 patient coming in to be tested or like do you just stroll in through the front door? Um, so I had two experiences going into the hospital. The first one, they said like, if you have a mask, wear a mask when you come in. But as soon as you go in, the clinic was just literally right to the, the left. And you go right to the clinic, they give you a mask that you hold up your health card for them to kind of look at it. You're, they, they're sanitizing their chairs, they're sanitizing everything. Everyone's wearing a mask, except for the healthcare workers, actually. But all, anyone that was getting tested was wearing a mask. Um, and then the second time I went in the hospital, which is when I was having shortness of breath, um, that was a situation like the, my nurse had to call the hospital, tell them I was coming. Um, I had to wait in my car until they were basically came out and got me and then they Whoa. took me straight into a room. Yeah. What was the testing? You said it was a, a long, um, uh, swab up the nose. Yeah. It was like basically the long swab up the nose, 10 seconds, kind of just going in circles while you just oh. try to think of anything else. Yeah, it's oh. not it's not pleasant. But I've actually heard that they've changed the testing now because people have gotten the two short swabs up each nostril and then down the throat. But Oh, that sounds much more one. doable. Oh, Bill, yeah. Bill yeah. That, that thing that I was talking about the other day, uh, I think it was when we were talking to Indy uh, that I was uh, listening to Bill Gates on Anderson Cooper and, and he was talking about how that... I don't know if it was exactly that, but it w- it was a change in the testing that made it so that a medical like the, the, they f- they figured a, a way where a medical professional doesn't have to administer the test, and which is going to allow the U.S. anyway to like ramp up testing rates so that they can so that people can swab at home and and like mm. submit so they don't have to be like going to a hospital to like be able to get way higher numbers of people tested so that they can get a better grasp on like how many people are getting it mm-hmm. and that sort of stuff after you um so after you go in and get tested and you you find out that you, you get the confirmation that you have it um what is the what is the recommendation you know because like you're obviously they they are asking that you take care of yourself at home and mm-hmm. and you have access to like a public health nurse um if for questions or or whatever 
but do they do they give you any kind of like um recommendations on what you should be doing while you're at home or or is it kind of just like you got to ride this out so just yeah. you know try to fucking hunker down get comfortable and and keep us updated yeah it's basically like i think a doctor actually said to me just binge as much netflix as you can and <laughs> eat as, and eat snacks but didn't want to eat snacks because I couldn't taste anything. But yeah, like there was nothing, there was nothing to do. Was just take Tylenol. And then for the chest pain, I just like filled a hot water bottle and kind of like put compression against my chest to make it feel a little bit better and take hot showers, try to like loosen up whatever's on, on my chest um, with the steam and try to get any sense of smell I could. But there was, there was nothing to do. And that was like the, the, you know, with a normal sickness, like a flu or cold, you wake up in the morning and you're, okay, I feel a little bit better. I have a little mm. bit more sense back or a little have whatever, sneezing less. And then for like seven days of this, I just was the same, just the same. And I what was like, was what the, is happening? What was the hardest part? Like, like out of the, the time span of, you know, whatever, was it 14 days or so? Mm-hmm. What was the, like, what was the most, um, what was the toughest part of it? Like what, what section um, of those the 14 days really sucked the most? The first four days were really bad, like really sick, really like I was trying not to throw up. I was that nauseous, sleeping a lot, like my body aches. I was sore to the touch. Like it felt like I had rolled down Citadel Hill 10 times kind of thing. Like it just Jesus felt Christ. like I was, yeah, it just was strange. Like I was like, it hurts to put my sweater on. It hurts to do anything like physically pain. And so that was definitely the worst. And then the thing that's just annoying, it's not, it's not painful was losing my sense of, of smell and taste. And I lost it. Like even last night I was eating dinner and I was, I can't taste that. I can't taste this. So my taste still isn't back and it's been almost three weeks. So it just, it stays for a oh, long time. Do you, that's do you mean like yeah. when you say lost sense of taste, do you mean like if you ate like a bold barbecue Dorito that's like covered in dust, like covered <laughs> in that Dorito dust. You don't mm-hmm. taste anything or it's like, it's much that's the more only dull. exception. So my first food back was, uh, I'm not kidding. Bold barbecue Doritos. Fuck they're yeah. my favorite. It, yeah. So I was like, give me some Doritos. That's what's We're up. Test this out. Mm-hmm. Cause I was like, melons not doing it. Carrots aren't doing it. I can't taste bread. So I was eating raisin bran just to make it go away. Mm-hmm. Um, and then when I had the Dorito, it was probably like the 12th day. And I was like, I have to eat really weird, like kind of like breathe out of my nose while I eat at the same time to have any hope of, of tasting anything. But a really dusty Dorito did do the trick. Hey, uh, <laughs> last night, the pizza, the pizza wasn't going, I wasn't getting much taste of pizza last night. So man, that's Ooh. so crazy. Have you, have you, uh, have you tried to like read up on, on, the like other estimates out there of how long that might take to come back, you know, is it is it a week for one person? And you know, I mean, fuck, we're so it's know. so that new. That was what I was asking. I was asking. That's what I mean. Like that, I, there was nothing for me to do, so I just kind of like I said, like rolled with it and just assessed how I felt. But they said there's no idea like how you get it back. I got my taste. I'd say three days before I started getting my smell back. So it's it's taste before smell. And I've talked to one other person, and that's been the same for them as well. Um, and then some people haven't lost their, their senses at all, but it's just crazy how long it lingers. Like I, there were the, the 10 days that I had zero, zero of anything. I was like, I'm not, I don't, I think my sense of smell is gone forever. I was hmm. genuinely worried. <laughs> were you, were you genuinely worried about like, like did the thought of, um, Whoa. like 
did the thought of death or or like pneumonia or or intubation like any any of those kinds of like a ventilator like were you, were any any of those things on your mind or or did you feel um, pretty like confident that you were gonna be discomfort in discomfort for a few days and then and then you know rise above? Mm-hmm. Well, I, I mean, I've never had trouble breathing. I've never had trouble speaking and felt tired after just speaking a few sentences. So I didn't really know how to react to that. I didn't know how to feel about that. So it was scary when I went to the hospital. And I, again, I feel, I don't think I would have gone into the hospital now if there's lots of people there. It's one of those things where you kind of, it just depends on your, your comfortability. Like you're like, how scared am I right now? And for me, it was pretty scary didn't want it to turn into pneumonia. So they checked out my lungs and, and it was fine. But I didn't feel like I was going to die at any point. It just felt like, when is this going to get better before it stops getting worse? I know that there's been and did um, you ha- a lot of, ch- I know there's been a lot of challenges with the healthcare system, like preparing to handle um, a ton of COVID-19 patients. What was your experience with uh, the healthcare system, like, did you feel like they were pretty prepared to handle your case, even though you were one of the first mm-hmm. few in Nova Scotia? Yeah, like, when I went in, like I said, they came out to the parking lot and basically, like, took me into a separate room. And when I was in there, there were... They, they told me, like, you're one of the first patients we've had in the hospital, so we're just trying to work out the kinks of how to make sure everything's sanitary, how to get in the room, how to get out of your room. And you feel bad as a patient because you see, like, oh my gosh, they have to go through so much protection to come into this room. They have to do the same thing coming out of it. And you just kind of see it from a different perspective. And so I think that if people don't need to go into the hospital, they shouldn't. But a lot of people were asking me, why aren't you staying in the hospital? Like people just don't really know how you're supposed to take care of yourself. Like people are like, you should be in the hospital. You should have medicine. And it's like, what? There's nothing, yeah. there's nothing they can they do. Don't have, there's they don't no have medicine. anything for it. Yeah, there's, there's no nothing. medicine for yeah. it. Yeah. So it's like, it's like people just think that, oh, you have the, the virus. You need to stay in the hospital. And, and, but it's like, no, it's, it's strange. Like, yeah, you have this, this contagious virus, but you can just stay at home. Yeah. Unless it progresses to, to the level where yeah. your like health is a re is under threat, you know, yeah, real exactly. threat, then, you know, you're, you've got the, you've got the flu until it becomes not just the flu. Emily, uh, what, what would you, what would you say to it? Like out of going through this entire experience, is there, is there anything that that you would just like want everyone out there who is currently practicing social isolation? Um, like, is there anything that you'd want them to know or to, to maybe consider that they might not be considering? Um, it's tough because now that there's community spread, I don't really know what to say about that. Like, you people are doing the best they can. Everyone's kind of trying to live through these weird times and no one really knows what to do and what not to do. So, I, and the information's changing every day, like wear a mask, don't wear a mask. Is it better? Is it worse? So I think it's tough for me to say, because now I just feel like I have a different perspective at having going through it. So it's like, yeah, it's, it's gonna, for some people it's really bad. And that's why it's tough because for some people it's a terrible two weeks for some people they could lose a loved one um and then for other people they don't even know they have it so how do you even tell people what level of scared to be on when you don't even know how it's going to affect you personally it's just such a a range of range symptoms and it's really tough to tell people how to feel about something if it's going to be different for everyone 
I mean, I guess, and that's where we get the, that's where we get the, the government saying, don't leave your fucking house. Like don't like, or not, yeah. not leave your house. Well, basically not leave your house unless you need to leave your house because it's just, yeah. because it's so varied and it's so unpredictable and some people will be totally fine and some people won't. So it's just like, yeah, stay inside. It's, it's yeah. I mean, it's a, it's, it, every time it seems to get a little bit more normalized that we live inside every day and we can't go and do all the shit that we're used to doing. Um, like socially, every time that becomes a little bit more normal and then you have a conversation about it, you realize that just how, just how, how fucked up it still crazy. really is. I was just kind yeah. of having this interesting thought when till you said it's, it's basically like the flu because you can't like, uh, there's not really medicine that they can't treat it right now. Um, the only, only thing for the, the flu was, is the flu it, shot way yeah. before you even get the fucking right, which flu. Which there isn't that, <laughs> there isn't a vaccine <laughs> Which we don't even have right that. So, so, um, but the thing I was thinking that's interesting is like. The interesting thing about COVID-19 is that each person who gets it, their experiences seem to be so unique. Um, there's mm-hmm. a lot of, like, you obviously have a lot of the similar symptoms, but there's people who are asymptomatic. There are people who get pneumonia and die. Like, there's a total, like, opposite ends of the, ends mm-hmm. of the spectrum, too. And it's just so unique to me. Well, it's unique and it isn't because, like, you know, Emily, your experience with coronavirus is your experience, but it's also, like, uh, Jane, who had brain cancer, her experience with brain cancer is totally different than Tom, who had brain cancer, whatever. And you know, it's and really, it depends on like it depends on the medical system as well, and like the place where you live. Right, because yeah. in Nova Scotia, where there hasn't been very many cases, I mean, you you know, you get it, and you get a nurse that getting it that getting calls it here every day. Yeah, getting it here would be very different than getting it in New York right now. Right, and like you know, the, you know? like oh, a lot yeah. of the, the, some of those people that like they're getting brought into a hospital where where if it does go beyond the I have the flu, you know, the common flu type symptoms uh, situation, I mean, it gets bad really quickly. Mm -hmm. And that's, Mm -hmm. and, and, and so, I mean, you know, even though we are in this, like this lockdown, you know, sort of lockdown state in, in, uh, in Halifax or Nova Scotia and we don't, and relatively we have not very many cases. I mean, we, we're, we're still in that sort of like relatively good place, you know, in terms of our medical system and like what people who do get it know. I guess our, our curve is relatively flat. As, as right long now, as people keep staying the blazes home. Stay, that's right. Stay in the blaze. Yeah, blazes dude, home. that's what Waiting we've been that saying one. here. That's what we've been saying here at Sick Boy day in and day out. Stay the blazes home. <laughs> Stay the blazes home for blazes' sakes. That's such a nervous campaign. Um, well, Emily, I want to say I want to say thank you for um, for taking the time to sit down and and chat with us and share your experience of something that is that is uh, obviously very scary and and something that a lot of people are very scared about. Um, um, I'm, I'm just so grateful that you, you got through to the other side of it and, um, and you know, you're, you're, you're a perfect, uh, example of how if, if you do unfortunately happen to contract this virus, um, you know, it's not, it's not all life or death kind of news, you know, it's, there is, there is, there is a way to get through to the other side like yourself and, uh. And I'm just glad that you did and that you were willing to sit down and, and shoot the shit with us for, for a few minutes uh, to share that story with everyone. So Thanks thank you. Thanks for having me on. It was really good to talk. 
Yeah, 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 definitely. And and keep safe. Keep, stay home. Stay the blazes home. Uh, take care of yourself. Wait, do you have to stay the blazes home anymore? Because like you're like. Are you are you good? Like, can you go out in public now? Do you you're... should get an armband yeah. that's like, I had it and I'm good now, so I can go <laughs> can do you, whatever I the fuck I, I want. want to. I really do. Can you get it again though? Can you get it a second time? Do, is is the jury out on that? I think They're the jury's, not sure, eh? I think the jury's out on They're that still. They, they say just. I'm the same as everyone else now. I yeah, had right. it. I went through it, but they're like, you're with everyone else. So yeah, that's, yeah. that's all I so know. So stay the blazes home. Well, if you get <laughs> yeah, it, so, if okay. you do get it again, um, just hit us up. You know, we'll, we would love to do yeah. another episode. Part two. Yeah, that's right. Uh, well, thank you again, Emily. Thanks. Sick Boy Podcast will be right back after this very short break. Are you tired of hearing the same old wellness advice? It's time to dig deeper and listen to America Dissected from Crooked Media, the podcast that's cutting into the science, culture, and policy that shapes our health. From doctors fighting for their rights to the surprising truths about sunscreen, America Dissected dives deep into the state of health. Tune in every Tuesday for new episodes of America Dissected, available on all major podcast platforms. Well, there you have it. Uh, Emily... Went through hell and back, and uh, glad to know she's all right. Yeah, mm-hmm. dude, losing your losing your sense of taste to the point where a dusty Dorito doesn't do much damage. Like that's dude, that's worse than pneumonia. That's you know what though, dude. Honestly, I Jesus wouldn't mind Christ. because then I'd be able to eat my mom's meatloaf and be like, yeah, yeah, it was good, mom. Good job. I really wow. enjoyed your meatloaf. What a hard burn to your mom. Is she gonna hear that? <laughs> uh, yeah, maybe. I hope not. And who is making meatloaf in 2020? <laughs> uh, families, Taylor. You, the, you, you the, know a little bit more about that if you uh, spend more time having family dinners. I do. Uh, I do dude. feel like meatloaf is like a is like it's a, I, mean, it's I feel a like that's a four meal. Yeah, I feel like that's a meal from like the Great Depression. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> dude. Yeah, yeah, Brian. Yeah, yeah. You know what? I'm an asshole for not uh, organizing a big family gathering right now. <laughs> I wasn't talking about now, you dick. <laughs> uh, Bri, why don't you intro our next guest? Uh, our next guest is Adam Kaczarski. He's a, a British fellow who's uh, quite the nerd. Oh, my uh, God. Jesus. A, a mathematician and an epidemiologist. The guy's just swimming in science and, and mathematics. So, you know what? You know what? Uh, I'm going to have to step in there, Brian, and, uh, and, and chuck this in there. He's a very handsome nerd. He is, yeah. Uh, he kind of looks like is. Ed Sheeran. He did, yeah. Oh, you know does, what? Right? I was going to say that he kind of looks like Edward Snowden. <laughs> uh, I didn't no. really see that. Ed oh, yeah. Sheeran's much more handsome. Do you think Edward, Edward Snowden. Snowden's handsome? Not necessarily, but I felt like... Hey, he's not a bad-looking guy. He's, yeah, I'm, no, yeah. he's not a bad-looking guy. Isn't Edward Snowden like an ugly version of Anderson Cooper? No. No. What? What? No. I Dude, Anderson Cooper is. is a walking snowman. He's know, like the like, dustiest, <laughs> whitest. Like he's he's literally a ghost. But he's handsome. Oh yeah. Oh my god. He he's is. He's very handsome. Yeah. He, oh, he's like he's, a really piercing. look. He's sexy with a capital S. Edward yeah. Snowden, so, not so much. I mean, but Adam Adam Kaczarski. He Adam, is Adam Kaczarski. 
is a pretty yeah, good looking I, fucking dude. I think he's I think he's 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 a much better looking than Ed Snowden, but I think he has got a Snowden esqueness to him. Interesting. You know what? This is the stuff that matters. You know, I, I'm I'm glad we're really digging into You're this right. part of it. Um, yeah. Adam is a uh, he is a mathematician and an epidemiologist, um, and he Nerd. sat down to to talk to us about. Uh, about crunching the numbers, about data and what the data is showing surrounding COVID. Um, and I found this to be a pretty fascinating uh, conversation, and I hope you do too. So uh, without further ado, uh, our conversation with Adam. Here we are once again, stuck in our homes, um, but we have the pleasure of being joined by our new friend, Adam Kacharski. Yeah, that's correct. Did I nail that? <laughs> yeah. You know what? You're getting better. One time out of 10, I'll get a name right. And right there, I did it. Uh, <laughs> Adam, Adam is an associate professor at the Department of Infectious Disease uh, Epidemiology at the London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine. Um, you're an epidemiologist, but you're also a mathematician. Uh, yeah. So my, my background's in, in, uh, in maths. And then I've sort of over the last decade moved more and more towards um, sort of infectious disease outbreak analysis, uh, collecting more data, particularly respiratory infections and, and kind of things that, that spread easily in populations. So, so basically what you're saying is uh, the, the fact that you're, you're all about math, uh, epidemiology, stats and data, you are swimming in data right now, I bet. <laughs> we, we kind of are and we aren't. Um, yeah, there's some obviously... Uh, yes, there's a lot more coming in and there's a lot more cases appearing, quite clearly a lot more infections, but there's still some pretty key bits of data um, we're missing. You know, there, there's some stuff we're starting to understand pretty well, but then there's some things where there's just a real big gap in our knowledge still. Like what? Um, children's the obvious one. Um, mm. So we know, you know, basically we can measure what we can see, right? So yeah, we know early on there was a lot of data on the more severe cases, older groups, but actually getting a sense of, of people who don't show many symptoms, uh, what are they contributing to the outbreak? Are they important? Can we ignore them? You know, how, how much are they going to influence our ability to control this thing? Is there like, I, I know that um, one of this, these stats that I've heard that I, I keep bringing up is that there's a lot of people who are asymptomatic. So there's this, this example of one of the cruise ships. They said that they had actually tested like everybody on board and um, half of them actually ended up having uh, COVID-19, but weren't showing any symptoms at all. Is, is that true? And like, like, how do you measure things like that? Yes, yeah, so I think... Uh, a kind of situation like that makes it a lot easier to study because you've got a whole bunch of people in one place. They test them. You know, you kind of got off the boat, um, essentially. But there's a few other studies that have tried to do that. You know, so they've, they've had a case and they've tested all of the people they've come into contact with or most of them. I think generally a lot of those studies, it seems to be about 50%, sometimes a bit more, a bit less, but uh, a pretty substantial proportion. But then there's the question of what do those asymptomatic people go on uh, to do in terms of infection. There was a study out uh, last week in China that suggested that you know, they, they could spread infection to others even with no symptoms. Um, mm. But obviously, if you imagine, these are these people are pretty hard to detect. So the numbers get really small really quickly. I think in that study, they infected about six others. So that's not really much data to work with. I imagine like it, that that working with data in relation to COVID, I mean, just the same way that 
um, you know, I, I think I heard maybe two weeks ago now, three weeks ago, which in this climate seems like, you know, might as well be 10 years ago in terms of how everything is progressing and the, the, the rate at which we're getting new information all the time, um, that, you know, children weren't, um, that children weren't, uh, particularly affected in the same way that that like an older population is. And that, you know, that's, that seems to be different from, from past, um, epidemics or pandemics that have affected the world. And, um, but I imagine that, that getting, getting data at the rate that you're getting it, like a study that comes out of China a week ago that it, like there's so little time to understand how that data correlates to what's going on or, um, or, or how reliable is it when you don't have this big timeline to look at? Like how effective is, is data when you have such a short window mm. to understand it? Yeah, I think that's a really good, uh, good point. I mean, one of the things we've tried to do from the outset is, um, because we, we worked on a, on a bunch of outbreaks, there's certain data you expect to come in at different points and, and it takes different amounts of time. And so a lot of the analysis we set up was under the understanding that, okay, there's going to be some of these studies that follow contacts of people at risk. We reckon that that will be coming in within the next few weeks. So we can kind of make some plausible assumptions, but we know when that comes in, we can integrate the new data. Mm. Um, I think that the, the challenge is if something comes up, which is just, so dramatically different from what we expect or, or, or what might be kind of the unknown. So I think one of those would be the kind of role of pre-symptomatics that I remember, I think it was probably like early Feb when I saw some very, very rough data suggesting that a lot of this transmission was happening with people with mild symptoms or kind of very early on that infectious period. And, uh, and that immediately just makes you think a lot of the things we've got structured for, for kind of controlling these things just isn't going to work nearly as effectively now. Yeah, like you're mm. always sort of at risk of mm. last week's data being uh, being yeah. being Old kind of news. null and void, yeah. void all of a sudden because uh, of new things coming up. Uh, yeah, and I think it's I and mean, that's one of the I think the hard thing certainly in a lot of the um, the coverage of this that I think people want there to be like the right answer straight away, and if that changes, mm -hmm. then that means someone was wrong. <clears throat> And mm -hmm. I think a lot of these things, you know, we start with uncertainty, um, and you kind of you hope it narrows over time, and you hope that where you started, what actually is the truth is somewhere within that range that you weren't yeah. so far wide of the mark. But, you know, we, we give some estimates of, of people have asked, like, how many cases do you currently think we're in a country? And, yeah, like for the UK, I'll say, well, maybe it's 100,000, maybe it's half a million. It's probably in that range somewhere. Mm. Um, and and obviously the true value may be slightly higher or lower, but we're kind of hoping it's, it's about right. Yeah. I'm, I'm really curious, as somebody who's studying the data, um, are you – afraid of like what COVID-19 might do to the world? Um, I think it can have a, yeah. I mean, if, if you sort of sit back and just let it spread, um, I think all the data points to, to, to something that's just going to be absolutely devastating. I mean, it, it's not just the, the deaths that you look at. I mean, obviously that's, that's a huge aspect of it, but it's the ability to put large numbers of people uh, in, in really critical care in hospital. That, that is the thing that is going to, we're already seeing, you know, uh, a country that or an area that, that kind of has transmission that, that hasn't been controlled for a while. We saw it in Italy. We're seeing it now in places like New York. Suddenly your hospitals are full. And I think also there's this kind of lag effect that, you know, it takes um, a, a week or two from being exposed to this to ending up in hospital. So by the time your hospitals are full, those infections happened a couple of weeks ago and you've got two weeks of transmission still to show up in the mm. system. Mm -hmm. 
In terms of um, modeling, you mentioned that uh, like some of the data that you saw in early February that uh, was was kind of indicating that people were transmitting the virus pre-symptomatic. Um, I imagine that that input in your models kind of drastically changes the trajectory of what the model might show for potential uh, infections down the road. How significant are inputs like that and how accurate can models be over time, um, especially like early on in the spreading of the virus? Yeah, I think that's a, that's a good question. I mean, so one of the things we looked at was um, the ability to kind of test people and trace their contacts to bring it under control. So the thing that worked really well for SARS worked for Ebola. Um, but two features that make those diseases reasonably possible to control is a lot of the infection happens when people are really ill. So it's, it's clear who's infectious. Um, and then for mm. something like Ebola, there's about a two-week gap between one person showing up with symptoms and the person they infect showing up with symptoms. So you've got quite a big window to go in, work out who they've had contact with and, and work out how you might you know, reduce the risk in those people. For, for COVID, it's about five days. So by the time you've worked out who's infectious and who's ill, you've already got the clock ticking on another round of infections happening. So it mm. makes that much, much harder. Mm. But I think the prediction question is a good one. And it, it depends the level we're looking at. And I think now in countries that have outbreaks taking off on the growth rates, you can probably pretty reasonably predict what's going to happen in terms of cases over the next week or two. Mm. Um, I think as well, for things like deaths, because it's all kind of those events have already happened. For a lot of countries, you could probably predict deaths over the next two, three weeks with, with a fairly high level of accuracy. Um, because even if a, a lockdown happens, you've got two or three weeks before that shows up. Mm-hmm. Something that was coming up that uh, a question that I was, uh, well, last night in bed, I was watching, uh, I was watching Bill Gates talk on CNN, um, with, uh, Anderson Cooper, Cooper. And, um, I can't remember the guy's name, Dr. Gupta, San, is it Sanjay Gupta, the guy that's on CNN all the time. And, um, and just listening to him kind of talk about numbers in a way that was really, um, was really sort of refreshing because like there, there's, there's, there's so many, we were, we were having this conversation with, um, with Indy the other day, guys, about how, you know, numbers come out and then the challenge with the data is that it, it, it can be different the next day or something else can come up and then that changes everything from the, what we thought was true the, a week ago or a week before or news outlets getting, getting their hands on data that might not have any correlation to anything whatsoever, but printing it because <laughs> it, you know, it might, you know, it might be interesting to know or to see. Um, but listening to Bill Gates talk about one of the questions that Anderson Cooper said was, so what are the, like, what are the odds of people that are thinking that they're going to be, uh, uh, you know, um, out and about celebrating Easter together? Um, and Bill Gates just went, <laughs> he just laughed. <laughs> and, and his big point was, we need to see numbers flatten and then go down before we even can start to even think about that conversation. Like you need to peak and you need to start going down in order for the, the, all the things that are going on in the world right now to even begin to, to dissipate. Like, and, 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 and I guess what, I guess the ultimate question there is like, what is the, what are the best estimates whether it's from a regional perspective or a global perspective, do we have for the, for those peaks occurring? Yeah, I think the one of the big challenges is the, there's this kind of trade-off by data you can have 
quickly and data that's reliable. And usually the, the more reliable picture of what's going on are things like severe cases and deaths that reflect transmission that was happening maybe three, four weeks ago. Um, but there are some ways we can get at it. So some colleagues of mine in the UK did a study of social behavior um, last week after we had a lockdown go in. And they estimated that this is uh, just under 2,000 people, I think about 1,600 people. Um, they estimated social contacts to drop by about 70%. So under a plausible range of assumptions about transmission, um, transmission is probably declining as of last week in the UK. So we're go- it's going to take some mm. time to show up, but it suggests that where mm. we are now is probably sufficient to be at that sort of peak and starting to go down. But as you said, that's obviously not time to be complacent because we're in a situation now where there's a huge right. amount of infection. So if you just slow it down, you're still at a huge level of infection. So you've got to kind of keep yeah. that going to, to really get those numbers. And I mean, as we've seen in places like Wuhan in China, so, you know, so they had, before the lockdown, people were making about 15 contacts per day. Afterwards, that dropped to two. So kind of like almost 90% drop in social interaction. Um, but that lockdown has been in place since, since last week of January. Um, and that's only mm. in the next week or two is that this is going to be start to be lifted. So I think this, this idea that it's a kind of two-week thing and then you go back to normal is, is unfortunately just really not what's going to happen. Do you, do you think that in them lifting it around now is, is um, like, like, are they in a place where it, it actually is kind of a safe, safe space to now lift those lockdowns or, or could they see a second wave? I think so. Yeah. So I, I think they, they probably are in a situation where they, they should be starting to, to lift things or, or consider what combination of things. You know, so I don't think it's like, let's go back to normal and have a massive party kind of thing. But I think it does have <laughs> right. to be phased sensibly, you know, so lift some things that maybe don't seem as risky and then see how that goes. Um, mm. But I think that they are certainly, um, it's this kind of threshold of, you know, have you got a situation where the epidemic would grow or decline? And as soon as you start to lift stuff, it's, you know, maybe there's a bit more potential transmission and then, you would eventually get to a point where you could have another outbreak. And then the question is, can you stamp it out quickly enough before needing another lockdown? Yeah. Out of like all the work that you've done and all the diseases that you've, um, out of all the diseases that you've, and outbreaks that you've studied over your time in, as an epidemiologist, like what, what has surprised you the most about COVID comparatively to everything else you've, you've looked at? This has just been... I think almost just the most frustrating outbreak to, to deal with because every bit of information we learnt about, put it in that bit of the space where it's going to have a huge impact and be very difficult to control. So, you know, we, we've worked with outbreaks that have a higher case fatality, but the characteristics of that virus mean that you do have control measures that can work more effectively. We've dealt with viruses that are milder but spread more easily, so you can't stop them, but the impact is lower. But this is just at that kind of, trade-off where it's unbelievably difficult to stop but it also can overwhelm health systems and i think you Mm. know i I look back through kind of you know talks and things i'd given in the past and i always have that hypothetical graph of you know what's the virus we don't want to see and this This is is it sitting in that Mm. spot fuck do you do you think that it's like do you think that that the way this has spread and 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 the the reason it's gotten so bad is is because of the virus itself or or do you think that there's there's also a bit of you know the fact that like we've we we were just so comfortable in our ways and like like mm. n- not really able to 
it seemed like it seemed like for for such a for such a long time there was like two camps there was the people that saw what was happening and saw what was coming and, and were kind of like oh no th- this looks really bad and then there was there was this other camp that was like oh we'll be fine you know and and i feel like there like and maybe the a lack in response was like this is a hoax yeah <laughs> yeah 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 right um like do you think that do you think that that how much of how much do you think like a, a social role has played in in the this spreading to pretty much every single country across the the planet? And I think yeah, we we, we start from the baseline where just the characteristics of this virus stopping it outright is just unbelievably difficult. I mean, even the countries, your place like Singapore, Korea, that are doing a really good job of keeping numbers mm. down, you know, they're pouring in resources and really you're really kind of stretching themselves in what they're doing. Um, but a lot of those countries had a kind of advantage in that they had dealt with SARS and MERS and they'd built up their capacity to deal with these kind of viruses as a result. I mean, but I do think mm. that there were a number of countries that I think did get, I, I don't know if it was complacent or maybe just thinking, particularly countries that, you know, banned flights to China and just thought that solved it, that the virus isn't going to get here yeah. now. And then, just just miss domestic transmission uh, as a result. So I think yeah, this is a virus that's very, very difficult to control, but I think a number of countries could have done a lot more to make sure they were stamping out those early sparks of infection before it actually took off. Uh, I want to come back to the, um, the, uh, the data coming out of China as well for a minute, and also um, Russia. Just looking at it purely from a, a data perspective, is there a problem with um, trusting data from countries like that that have been known to? Oh, Brian, you know, you're getting political. Jesus, suppress, here we go. Suppress numbers or, or try to try for polit- political reasons to um, show that they have things maybe under control when possibly they don't. Yeah, I and mean, I think basically in any outbreak data set, we we always assume that there's a load of cases that are being undetected or unreported. I think untangling what the reason you know is that just because this is hard to diagnose hard to confirm it you know is there kind of something in the pipeline and the political system of how things have been reported i think working out what's behind that is really difficult and i think we're now doing analysis of um, how many cases are being reported across the world in different countries and actually a lot of western countries seem to be performing about as well as china did in the early stages so maybe only reporting about five percent of people who are ill because they're not testing or, or whatever so i think it's just a a really common problem. But I think it certainly was a challenge early on that um, because we were getting data, all of our analysis was just focused on China and we didn't have a clear idea of how much the outbreak we were seeing. Um, it, it's quite hard to make general statements. So one about kind of fatality. Now we're seeing data from places like Korea that align very closely with what we saw in the early China data. So that kind of gives us a validation that, you know, okay, those those trends we're seeing probably are, um, numbers that we can apply to other countries too. Um, you you've written a book called uh, "The Rules of Contagion," um, and the the subtitle there is uh, "Why Things Spread and Why They Stop." Um, so this is a two part question. The first one is: y- you wrote this book, <laughs> obviously before the spread the spread of COVID. Um, 
Is this just a giant ploy for your own benefit uh, for, to like get, you know, to sell books? Uh, are, are you, you the reason high? that COVID is spreading around the world? I want to clear. I just want to just make sure. For all the conspiracy get, theorists uh, out there. I mean, I, I probably would have written more about COVID in the book if that was okay. um, been a It's been a surreal one. I mean, it's, uh, on, the, yeah, yeah. So on the one hand, I think it's... It, it's good that people can find that useful, but obviously, if you do if you do have a book out, you know you do events, you do all these kind of things around it. Which, because I've just been focused on analysing this outbreak, kind of I think any author at the moment is finding that basically their entire schedule of what they were going to do has just been put right. by the wayside. So yeah. I think it is, yeah, it, it is kind of very surreal timing. I think. Um, I want to I want to touch on the 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 subtitle there, the why things spread and 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 why they stop. Um, this might this might come off as a really stupid question, uh, but I don't know anything about anything. So, uh, what what are the chances that this? What are the chances that this doesn't stop? Like, is is there a possibility that this could just that like, um, like how help me wrap my head around how this how this works? You know, like could we could we just be in a world now where forever we just live with COVID? And I guess to piggyback on that, what is and what is the data showing about people being able to get infected a second yeah. time? Um, yeah, yeah. So I think that's that is a good. You know, why do outbreaks stop? Is is obviously the the big question at the moment. I mean, I think there's two ways. Um, in the absence of, uh, you know kind of any any kind of vaccine um you know so, so most diseases we'd vaccinate a population and that means that if you have enough people vaccinated you know if you have an infectious person they're unlikely to meet someone susceptible so that means that transmission declines over time so it's the kind of herd immunity concept for vaccination so of course if we don't have a vaccine it may be that over a long period of time just sufficiently many people end up getting infected even if we try and control it that you do build up some immunity in the population and that ends up slowing transmission. So that's kind of one way this could end that over the next year is or that, two. Is, is that what happened with Spanish flu? Is like, yeah. is that how that kind of like petered yeah. out? Okay. Um, yeah. And I mean, with that, there's, there were, there were a few other kind of features, but yeah, a lot of places kind of saw a few waves and then people built up some immunity. I, I was curious about Spanish flu because I knew I know that naturopathic doctors didn't exist back then, and you know I rely on them instead of getting vaccinated myself. Oh, like, Brian, you know, shut up, <laughs> Jesus Christ! St. John's Wort and stuff like that seems to Don't. work pretty effectively. <laughs> you're, you're, that was a joke. That was a joke. You're damaging people. the minds of, of the world. I mean, Brian. Uh, yeah, Spanish flu. Yeah, we can use it for comparisons, but it was a different era in terms of our ability to um, to yeah. do these kind of things. But then it's the thing of like, okay, I mean, we 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 put some analysis out recently of to get to that point where you you have the, these numbers infected um yeah that's going to very quickly overwhelm your health system so you'd be looking at and a number of groups have, have published similar stuff you'd be looking at something circulating for a year or two basically before you that kind of would kick in as an effect probably Jesus. so then it's a case of you you have to reduce transmission by basically just reducing interactions um, I think in an ideal situation for um, for things like uh, for things like SARS, I mean, even actually for things like STDs, you know, people we kind of have that as part of our our lifestyle that people kind of you know reduce those risky interactions. If someone does get infected, they kind of their contacts can find out and get tested too, and and that's kind of the principle that could work with this. But we'd need to be much faster, much more targeted, and much more efficient to, to sustain mm. that. Um, but I think that's kind of where we're facing. Until we can get a vaccine, 
um, you know, we're not in a situation where we can have large numbers getting infected because it will just overwhelm our health system so quickly. So we need to find a way to keep transmission down somehow. So I, th- I think that will just be a fundamental lifestyle change potentially over the next year or two. Is that something that you look at, like from a from a data perspective, like like how this will affect us socially, like on a social level, the 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 quarantines, the social isolation, like how that, how that's going to affect change in in our world day to day going that, forward. That's a good, great question. It's not something we we've looked at in the short term. I think we've just focused more on scenarios of you know, how do we just stop this knocking out all our health systems. Mm. Um, but I think there's secondary effects when you think about it. I mean, in, I mean the, even on other diseases, there's things like, you know, the polio eradication um, campaign. You know, that's being, that vaccination and other health things are being massively disrupted by this. And then, as you said, you know, mm. we're kind of in unprecedented territory of having this many people in isolation, obviously in terms of, you know, effects on people's financial status, on psychology, on kind of social lives, What's that going to look like if we have to have months of this? Uh, and I think it's going to have certainly have some health impacts. But yeah, I mean, there's there's a number of other people who are more qualified than me working on that. But I think yeah, we do need to be mm. thinking about that as well. Mm-hmm. Mm. Um, well, Adam, I, I got to say, like, thanks for thanks for taking time out of your schedule because I know I know things are pretty uh, hectic over there. So uh, it really means a lot that you sat down and, and shared some of your wisdom and your knowledge with us. And uh, I hope that you keep on fighting the good fight, man, because uh, we're all in this together and we're relying on on people like you to crunch those numbers because Lord knows I can't. Um, <laughs> Lord knows. <laughs> uh, thank you so much, Adam. And there you go. Uh, from, from I told you, I told you he was a nerd. You, Jesus Christ! <laughs> I'm hope, just kidding. I Adam, hope he man. doesn't listen to this, <laughs> dude. You know that being a nerd in 2020 is like the hottest, right? I know. That's what I'm saying. I'm not saying it in a degrading way. What is? Well, I'm just what, saying. You know what? It sounds like you are though. You said he was. Yeah, a, you said fucking nerd when you put fucking <laughs> out of it. Did, yeah. I don't think I said fucking. I said yeah. yeah I you said, said he was fucking a nerd. nerd. And also, you want to know what the you want to know what the dictionary says for uh, uh, what nerd is? The definition of nerd: a foolish or contemptible person who lacks social skills or is boringly <laughs> studious. Boringly studious. Wow. I was thinking more about the boringly studious part. Wow. Ready for this I one? Would, well, Here, here's, here's the other. Excitingly here's, studious. Here's the other one. Here's the other uh, definition. A single-minded expert in a particular tactical field. He's not oh, really single-minded. A, he's... Uh, He's, he's definitely multifaceted. He's dual. Single minded single minded is a is a is a high compliment. It means that you are extremely focused. And but he but he's both a mathematician and an epidemiologist. He's he's, he's dual mi- minded. Yeah. In a in a in an even more intellectually brilliant way. That's right. And I'm, extremely I'm foolish and contemptible at that. <laughs> um well, I'm just kidding, Adam. If you're listening to this, uh, I love you and uh, like we said, you're really handsome. And really smart. So wow. you got it all. You yeah. got it all going. Yeah, we do. We're the, yeah, we got it all going. Uh, speaking of going, let's get the fuck out of here. I uh, hope you guys enjoyed this week's episode. Um, we, you know, we, usually we're we're focusing on the COVID stuff on Fridays, um, but we, these two conversations we just thought complemented each other really well, and we figured we'd uh, we'd toss it out this Monday. We'll come back with you with you on Friday for a feel good Friday episode uh, where we'll just we'll just dive right into the goods um 
we got a lot of articles to get through and a lot of a lot of shit to to joke around about. So we'll see you Friday, and then uh, this following this coming Monday, uh, we'll be doing a, a, an episode, a second episode with our good pal Larry. Uh, Larry, if you don't remember, uh, is a third the host. episode actually is it our third episode with Larry? Yeah, no, it is. no, yeah, second. No, it's our second, dude. We've hung out with Larry several times, but this is the second <laughs> oh, recording dude, we've had. A, I, I, think I think you're confusing third. the time we took Larry for beers as an episode, which uh, it, could, <laughs> it very well should have and could have I been. Think you are. But it wasn't. Um, Larry is okay. the host of uh, When Life Gives You Parkinson's, a uh, really fantastic podcast over on the Curious Cast Network. Um, and we talked to Larry about his his Parkinson's and, and you know... Um, how things have changed since the last time we sat and spoke with him. He's a really wonderful guy, and we're looking forward uh, to pumping that episode out to you uh, next Monday. So hope you're all well. Uh, stay hunkered down. Stay stay safe. Don't touch your eyeballs. And, uh, and you know, fucking... Fucking... You can do it. Just fucking should, do it. Uh, you know? Fucking do we it. Should, we should wrap this the same way that we do with you saying iTunes store and stuff, Patreon and... Oh, yeah, uh, okay. Let's do that, Brian. Thanks. Uh, uh, so, we're wait, done. We're, uh, we're done now. And uh, and <laughs> there's some self-editing there, if you heard that. Um, uh, that is it for this week. But uh, in the meantime, if you want to help us out, go on over to Apple Podcasts and leave a rating and a review. Hey, you know what? And our Patreon has just been... So heartwarming over the last uh, week or so. We've just we've we've been uh, the the patrons have been pouring in, and we really can't thank you enough for your support. If you would uh, like to become a patron, please go to Patreon.com/sickboy and uh, and and join us. We've been doing the the uh, Patreon hangouts, um, which have been awesome. And uh, there's lots of cool stuff to get involved in on Patreon. Patreon.com slash sickboy. Yeah, and I just want to give thank a, you a, everyone warm, for, for... A, a warm-hearted welcome to some of our new patrons, including Heather Young, Neil Carbert, Caitlin Rose, Donna O'Dell, Shaylin Sampson, Ronna Harris, Helena Do you want to just Dow, throw in their uh, address Ratera, and Madison well? Lenny, uh, Sarah McNeil, Sarah Simpson, Kate Larson, Heather Grandy. Thanks so much for your yep. contributions, guys. Yes, We're thank so you so much. We'll be posting your credit card our... information and your uh, <laughs> and your social insurance numbers in the show notes below. So if you'd like to see that, you can check that out. Uh, and uh, thanks, Donovan, for making it sound like uh, we are running the most elaborate uh, scam right now. And uh, this is what it sounds like when you're stealing a bunch of people's money. This, you're, what you're going to do is oh you're going to put in the sound right now of, of us uh, making copies of credit cards and social insurance numbers and scraping data from people's uh, bank accounts. And uh, this is what think, that sounds like. I think he's just going to play Money by Pink Floyd. Yeah. <laughs> uh, <laughs> And thanks, Donovan, for the amazing sound design. And thanks, Take Part, for the theme music. That is it for this week. I'm Brian. I'm Taylor. I'm Jeremy. And this is Sick Boy.
For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.